Well, good morning and welcome. And if this is your first time at Great Oaks, a special welcome to you. And we are glad that you have joined with us today. Over the last couple weeks, we have been asking ourselves this question. Are we equipped to walk with others on their journey of faith? We've talked about a lot of different things. And as we enter this last week of the series, I want us to ask ourselves this final question. If the gospel calls us to live in the gray with a focus on mission, invested in groups with hearts of compassion for our community, what does that mean as we gather together here every Sunday morning? How should that mission to invest out in our community to be focused on mission, to learn to live in the tension of the gray, how should that impact what happens here? We've talked a lot in this series about our hearts and our actions for those outside, but what happens here on a Sunday morning? How do we help people feel comfortable here? We're going to take a look at what this means and what it means to be equipped to journey with others inside of this building by creating a welcoming atmosphere. Did you know that the average church visitor, the first time they come, has decided if they will come back within six minutes of walking into a church? Actually, within six minutes of arriving in our parking lot. That means before a single guitar is strummed, before a sermon is preached, before any bumper video is shown, the average guest has already decided if they're coming back or not. They've already decided, is this a welcoming place? And so how are we doing? In an article called Secret Thoughts of a First-Time Church Visitor, author Susan Clayball writes this. Did you see me on Sunday? I walked into your church and looked around, wondering where to go. I saw lots of people eating donuts. That would be nice. We should add that. And drinking coffee, but no one greeted me. I stood there not knowing where to go or what to do until finally one of the pastors came up to me and he asked me to do the usual. By the usual, I mean what every church has asked me to do when I visited fill out a piece of paper with all of my information and hand me a gift from the church. Then I'm directed to the sanctuary where I can sit anywhere I want all by myself. After I filled out the form, I was directed to the sanctuary where I looked, I saw, sat at the end of a row, I put the gift beside me and just looked around. There were people having conversations, but no one noticed me. This is what usually takes place. I was there for some time before a man sat in front of me and he turned around to introduce himself. He was nice, but he didn't talk long and I was alone again. I was there for some time. I've yet to go to a church where a member asked me to join them in their row and sit with them so I'm not sitting alone as a visitor. I wonder why this is so weird in a Christian community. 
However, when I was a member of a church, I never considered taking these kinds of initiatives to make visitors feel welcome. Church, some of our visitors are Christians and some aren't. Either way, there are people searching for something, searching for a place to belong, searching for a place to worship, searching for a family to walk alongside them, searching for a place to feel God's love. As you reflect on Susan's words, or maybe if you look that up this week and read that article, I wonder, how are we doing? I also wonder if we were to ask ourselves hard questions, just for ourselves, you don't have to answer this to anybody else. I mean, maybe you want to talk about it in your life group this week, but what keeps you here? What keeps you coming to Great Oaks? As you come each Sunday, are you coming to serve or to be served? And no matter how you answer that question, what is your motivation? What's motivating that? You see, those of us who call Great Oaks home are called to serve. However, sometimes we, because we're broken, sinful people, me too, would rather be served. We have a desire to feel important or to have what we want, and this isn't a new problem. It happened with Jesus and his disciples several times. And so as we begin to wrestle with this thought, I want to encourage you, pull out your phone, open your Bible to Mark chapter 10, and that's where we're going to kind of spend some time this morning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so Mark's second book in the New Testament. And what I hope you do each week as you come, as I give you these questions and these thoughts to kind of ponder is, put those against Scripture. Please don't ever come and be like, Jason said it, it's true. Always be checking. We all make mistakes, and I, I would love to have those conversations where you're like, I have questions about what you said. But as we do that this week, I want us to see this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples as he's walking towards Jerusalem. So Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, and it says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He replied, they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But he said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he's chosen. Then the, when the ten other disciples heard that James and John had asked this, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, maybe the most important thing for us to know about this text is the location where it falls, what's happening all around. The context of this passage is really important. And the context of this passage reveals to us something that your elementary school teachers probably told you wasn't true. How many of you had a teacher who once said, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Anybody, right? There are dumb questions, and there are dumb times to ask dumb questions. And the context of this passage, I'm sorry, I just want to be honest, right? Like, it's true. I've asked dumb questions, you've asked dumb questions, we all ask it, and then we're like, oh, shouldn't have done that, right? It's true. Let me back up just one verse. Jesus has pulled his disciples together, he's headed to Jerusalem, and he has told them that he is going to go die. And then in three days, he'll rise again. All right, so I'm going to go be killed by people who don't like me. You all, the disciples, know who those are. And then I'm going to rise again. And it's in that moment that James and John are like, hey, Jesus, got a favor to ask. Can we be on your right and left? Jesus is so patient, right? He's patient with us too, right? Because we ask Jesus dumb questions. We want dumb things. We're no different than the disciples. It's easy to like read the Bible and be like, did, were the disciples just completely clueless? Like, were they just complete all the time? Were they completely clueless? But they're really no different than us. But if we back up even further, what we see is we're in the middle of a three-chapter section of the Gospel of Mark. And this three-chapter section starts in Mark 8.22. So if you still get your Bible out and want to flip back your phone, go ahead and flip back there. We're going to go there in just a minute. And it ends at the end of chapter 10. And we kind of see this section is bookended by two miracles where Jesus heals a blind man. So in 8.22, he heals a blind man. And at the end of chapter 10, he heals a blind man. And we have all these things that are happening in between these two healings. And this first healing in 8.22 is something that we don't expect to see happen. Because this blind man comes to Jesus, he heals him. And he says to him, can you see? And as the blind man opens his eyes, he said, I see, but it's fuzzy. People look like trees walking around. And we're like, wait a minute. Did Jesus' miracle not work? Did he not really heal him? He tells him, close his eyes again, and he opens them and he can see. And what we see here is Jesus is setting the stage for what's going to happen in these next three chapters. And he's going to begin to help the disciples understand that it's not their physical sight, but their understanding of what's happening spiritually that they don't yet see clearly. And that so often we don't see clearly. And so it's right after this that Mark tells us Jesus and his disciples walk from village to village. And as they're going, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And Peter, Peter, our favorite disciple, the one who is always there with the answer, always there to know what's going on, is like, you're the Messiah. You're the one we prophesied about. 
You're the one who who is going to come and set the captives free. You're the one we've all been waiting for. You're the one who's going to set Israel free and restore the things that God started in the Old Testament. And we're all like, Peter gets it. Peter sees. Well, maybe. Because then Jesus, right after Peter's declaration, says or predicts his death the first time. And I actually want to change that. You'll see that heading in your Bible. If you look in there, it'll say, Jesus predicts his death, or Jesus tells he's going to die, or something like that. I actually think it might be better understood as Jesus telling his disciples for the first time what his servant mission is. Jesus is reminding his disciples of why he's come. I've come to lay down my life. I've come to die. I've come to serve, but I'll pick it back up again in three days. That's my mission. That's what I'm focused on. And Peter, the one who we thought could see, is like, pulls Jesus aside, right? This is like my favorite thing. It's like, hey, Jesus, could you, can, can we talk? Puts his arm around him, brings him over, and he's like, you can't die. You're, this is not true. Stop talking like that. That's not going to happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't see. You don't understand what has to happen. And Jesus says in 8.31, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, be rejected by the elders, leading priests, and teachers of the religious law. He'd be killed, and three days later would rise again. After Peter's confrontation, he says in 834, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. He says to Peter, listen, Peter, this is not about power. It's not about authority. It's about coming to serve. It's not about coming to be served. It's about coming to serve. It's not about prestige, it's about sacrifice and denial. And if we move forward, just not even a full chapter into Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes his second announcement of his mission. And he tells the disciples that he's going to die. Mark 9, 31, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and he'll be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. Jesus' words seem clear. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'll rise again. His disciples still don't seem to get it yet. And so instead, they begin to argue. They're uncomfortable, Mark says, and they begin to argue about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? So James and John ask the question in 10, but in 9, all the disciples are arguing about who's going to be greatest. And Jesus is like, did you guys miss it? I just said, who wants to be the greatest is going to be the least. They're going to have to sacrifice. Jesus' response to the disciples is not in 935 is whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Jesus' point here is that his kingdom and his mission is not about power and prestige. It's not about having the place of honor. It's about having the place of a servant. 
And in the midst of that, he brings a child over and he says to them, whoever welcomes these welcomes me. You see, no one looks at a child and says, that is the picture of power. We love kids, right? We cherish our kids, but nobody says to a five-year-old, hey, you know what? You're ready. You're ready to drive a car. You're ready to live on your own. You're ready to go to the grocery store. You just go get whatever. You're ready to get a job and make money and pay for all of these things. Kids can't do that. And if they could, let's be honest. My kids would buy Pop-Tarts, root beer, and mac and cheese. And they wouldn't be very healthy, right? We look at a child and we say, someone needs to take care of that kid. Someone needs to love that child. Someone needs to walk alongside of that child. And there's no glamour in this, right? Going to Aldi or Costco every week is not glamorous. It's just what we have to do, right? And that's what Jesus is saying as he brings this child over. And so at the end of, after he says this, a rich man comes up and asks Jesus, what do I have to do? Good teacher, he says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you need to follow the law. And he says, I've done all that. I know the law. I follow the law. And Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and he says, then go and sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor. And the rich man says, I, he just hangs his head in shame because he can't do that. Scripture tells us he had great wealth. And as he walks away, the disciples are like, Jesus, we've given everything to follow you. And Jesus' answer in Mark 10, 31 is, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Which then leads Jesus into his prediction of his death or his mission statement for a third time, which takes us right back to where we started. We see three times Jesus has told his disciples what must happen, but James and John, they just don't see clearly yet. They think they're going to Jerusalem, they're going to ride in, and Jesus is going to become king, and he's going to rule, and they want to sit at his right and his left. But what they don't see is as Jesus walks into Jerusalem, they're not going there for a coronation of a king, they're going there so that Jesus can lay down his life and die and Jesus says to them, can you drink this cup that I have to drink? Can you deal with the suffering and the pain that I have to deal with? And they're like, yeah, we'll do that. And to their credit, they do. If you read on in Scripture, in Acts, James is the first disciple who gives up his life and is killed for his belief in Jesus. And John, though he doesn't die, he's the last disciple, or he's not killed, he did die, but he's, not the la he's the last disciple remaining alive, but he lives his last days exiled alone on an island because of his belief in Jesus, because of who he declared Jesus to be. And so they say, yes, we can do that, and Jesus says, then it's, it's not mine to decide who will sit on my right or my left, that's for the Father to decide. And then the other 10 come, and they're not mad. Like, they're, I, I don't want you to miss this. They don't come, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Why are you asking Jesus who's greatest? They're upset that they got left out, 
All right, they're like, wait, time out. Who makes you two think you get to be the top? There are 12 of us here. We've all been doing this together. We all have a shot at these seats on the right and the left. And I want us to stop and take a look at what Jesus says back to them in John 10, 42 and 45. So Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' words show that his kingdom is going to be different. Jesus has modeled servant leadership all along as he has let people in. He's welcomed the outsider. He's welcomed the least of these. And John tells us in his gospel that he's about to do it again when they sit down to eat the Passover meal and there's no servant there to wash their feet. Jesus takes his cloak off and washes his disciples' feet. Church, we need to understand that the call to follow Jesus is not a call to places of power. It's not a call to places of significance. It's a call to serve others. It's a call to see and meet needs of those around us. It's a call to lay down our rights and to humble ourselves enough to serve. It's a call to humility. And it's humility that allows us to meet the needs we see. It's humility that allows us to meet the needs we see. Jesus' final statement that he would lay down his life as a ransom for many is the essence of the gospel. The God who has all authority, all power to do whatever he wants, stepped out of heaven to walk among you and I, to live life in our shoes, to understand what it feels like to be human, to struggle in the way we struggle. To go to a cross, to be publicly humiliated because he came to serve, because he loves us. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. Each and every one of us has broken God's heart. Each and every one of us has sinned. Each and every one of us has fallen short of God's standard. And Jesus says, you can't pay that debt, but I can. And he stretches out his arms on the cross and his blood is spilt and it pays the price for our sin. But that's not the end. Three days later, he rises again, ensuring that we have a better life, ensuring that eternal life will come, that death has been defeated. And that's our hope. That's the essence of the gospel. If you're new here today, don't miss that. There's a God who loved you enough to die for you. Who paid the price you couldn't pay and who set you free. Free from whatever you feel like is holding you down or pressing you in. And it's because of him, because of the service he gave to us because of his lowly position that we then serve. One commentator said it this way, we're not Christians because we serve. 
We serve others because we're Christians. We serve, we do the things we do each day because we're Christians. We, like the disciples, though, are often blind to our own desires for power and honor. There's a story of a man named Brother Lawrence, who was a Carmelite monk. Brother Lawrence's name at birth was Nicholas Herman, and he grew up in Lorraine, France in the 1700s, and he was a soldier in the French army. But in 1666, he became a follower of Jesus and went to live in a monk, as a monk in a monastery. In this monastery, he was assigned to work in the kitchen where he was in charge of cleaning the utensils. Really glorious work, right? He's going to do the dishes after dinner. At first, he hated the work. But he set himself to walk in God's presence so that he could worship God and serve others with humility. In time, he came to worship God more in the kitchen than in the cathedral, and he could pray, Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing dishes. His meditations from his time in the monastery and on the Christian life are now recorded in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence chose humility and by it achieved greatness. How are we doing it? Choosing lives of humility. Putting the needs of others above ourselves. We spent a lot of time in this series talking about how we do that every day outside, how we do that in our communities. And so today, as we bring this message of humility home, understand that that's our call every day as we live. But understand, too, that that doesn't stop at the door of this building. And so as we think about how to apply this teaching of living lives as servants in humble submission, I want to frame it in the context of here on Sunday. What might it look like for us to be humble servants here on Sunday? This is for those of you who call Great Oaks home. If you're like first-time guest here, you're like, I'm not serving anybody. I just came here for the first time. You're right. You don't have to. But this is our desire of what you experience as you walk in. We're growing. That's our mission statement. Helping everyone take their next steps. We're not perfect yet, but we're working to get there. But I think lives of humility on a Sunday morning look like seeing a need and meeting a need. Imagine with me, if you will, you've driven here on a Sunday morning, you park your car, and you walk to the front door. And no one's there to open the door for you. No one's there to say good morning. No one's there to smile at you. Would you choose to stand there and open the door for the next person? Or would we walk in and just complain that there was no one there? You see, if we live lives of humility and service, we see the needs around us and we meet them. 
What if you arrived and there was somebody there? They greeted you, but you walked into this room and it was full and there was no usher to set up chairs. There was no one to help people find seats. Would you step in and fill that role? Would you say with a cheerful spirit, I guess I'll help out today. Now I'll try not to make this go too long because I'm about to talk about like my favorite thing ever to talk about. But it's this room over here where there are 135 kids. And if our goal of serving our community is to make sure there's no hindrances, that that first six minutes a person is in our building, they feel welcome, they feel like they want to come back, that wing matters more than almost anything we do for our young families. Now let me be clear. There's not a lot of glory over there. It's not super glorious to serve in the nursery and like clean up the exploded diaper every day. Nobody's like, oh man, I can't wait to do that, right? There's no glory in sitting in a large group kids time teaching about Jesus and who he is and helping kids understand that Jesus loves them while a third grader picks his nose and eats it in front of you, right? There's no glory to that. But church, if we're not here to serve those kids in 20 years, we'll shut the doors if we make it that long. No parent walks in this place, looks at 25 kids in a room with one adult and goes, I want to bring my kid back there. How could God be calling you or me to humbly serve, to meet the needs we see? I'm sure if you feel like, you know what, I don't care if it's glorious or not, I would love to be over there sitting there with those kids seems much better than sitting in here listening to you talk. Go talk to Tara. She would love to talk with you. I've never met a youth pastor who's not looking for help in middle school and high school ministry. Again, it's not glorious. I've been in the van with 14 middle schoolers who all forgot to put on deodorant. It's not glorious. (laughs) It's servant leadership. It's seeing a need in our community and making a place for those who don't yet know Jesus to come and see, to come and experience This doesn't happen on a Sunday morning without a lot of volunteers. Somebody to keep the glare off my forehead so you're not blinded every Sunday. Someone to make sure the mic works. Someone to make sure they play because if I had to sing next to Dave, you would never come back. I promise there would be a hindrance to people worshiping. There's a whole team of people in the back that maybe you don't even know. who have to make sure the song lyrics come up at just the right time, right? Because if they're a little late, some of, some of us get annoyed. There's not glory in serving. But that's not what we were called to. Church, if we're going to be equipped, it starts here with every one of us walking into this place with a desire to serve. I like to look at it as practice. Because if we can't serve here, I don't think we're serving very well 
Monday through Friday either. For those of you who are already serving and demonstrating this attitude, I want to say thank you. We can't do that. We have a lot of people who are already doing this. And if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. But I don't want you to think you get totally off the hook just because you've done it, right? If you're doing that and you've found the joy, you've found the excitement in that, who could you ask to come serve alongside of you? Because there's nothing better than doing what you love for the glory of Jesus with someone else that you like to hang out with. What friends could you invite to come serve alongside you? If we're going to be equipped to journey with others, we have to start here. And we have to come together as a church saying, no matter what, we don't want anyone who's coming to hear the gospel of Jesus for the first time to have a distraction. And we'll serve anywhere you need to make sure that happens. Is that our heart? This section of scripture I already told you ends with Jesus healing another blind man. And that blind man's healing is instantaneous because Jesus and his disciples are about to walk to Jerusalem and they will see clearly exactly what his mission was. May God give us eyes to see the needs of those around us and humble hearts to serve those around us. The disciples finally got it. We know this because Peter, who kept asking these questions, who kept making these statements, who never seemed to get it, in the book of 1 Peter says this in chapter 5. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the suffering of Christ. And I too share in his glory when he revealed it to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. It's not like we look at people and we just beat them up with our words. But as a shepherd that loves his sheep, not for what you'll get out of it, but because we're eager to serve. Don't lord it over people assigned in your care. Don't, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of never ending glory and honor. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. All of you, every one of you, no one exempt, all of you. Dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves to the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up. Peter got it. It wasn't about the right answers. It wasn't about sitting on the right or left. It's about humbly serving and caring for those that God has brought around us. Humility allows us to meet the needs we see. May we learn that same lesson that Peter did and serve our community well as a result. Will you pray with me? God, as I read the Gospels, as we read the Gospel accounts of your son here in this place, we are thankful for his patience. Because God, like the disciples, we often ask stupid questions and we ask you for dumb things. 
And we do it because we miss the point and we ask your forgiveness and your grace in that. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the needs all around us. I pray that you give us hearts like Jesus to serve those around us, to sacrifice our desires and our wishes and our wants to love the people you bring into our care. And God, we pray that through those loving acts of service, you would receive glory. That people who don't know you, who don't know that there's a God who loved them, loves them would come to understand that love and see that love. That God, your name would be lifted up as we serve those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude our service this morning, I want to give you a chance to respond. So we're going to spend some time in prayer. For five weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be equipped to walk with others, that they would come to know Jesus. So my question for you this morning is, who's in your life that God has equipped you to walk alongside of? A neighbor, a coworker, a family member, a teammate, someone in your algebra class, someone who sits next to you in science. Who's that person? Who's that name? I want to give you a few minutes now as we close to pray for that person. Maybe you need to pray that they'd be receptive to an invitation to come to a party next weekend. Not even here on Sunday morning, but would you come to Community Bash? Come see the heart of our church on display for our community to serve. And after I give you a little bit of time to pray silently, I'll close this in prayer. And as we close that time in prayer, and I say amen, there are four stations, two kind of on the sides and two in back with a bucket and some paper. What I'd like for you to do, if you feel comfortable, is get up and write the names of those people you just prayed for on that piece of paper. You can write first or last. Nobody's going to see this. Fold it in half, drop it in the bucket. And every morning at nine o'clock, our staff gathers for prayer. And this week, we're going to pray for you and your friend, that as you journey alongside of them, they would come to know the grace and love of Jesus. So that's how we're going to conclude, and then we'll sing a song. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would equip us 
Give us eyes to see the needs. Give us hearts of compassion to love those around us. Clear time in our schedules that we can invest in conversation. Maybe it'll be at the soccer field or the football field or sitting in the stands. But God, I pray this week that you would give us hearts to walk alongside of those who don't know you. That instead of eyes of judgment, you'd give us hearts of love. Give us words to speak when we need to speak. Help us to know the difference between when we need to listen and when we need to talk. But God, for each person who was prayed for in this room, I pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray that you would remove barriers this week, that those of us here who would love to see them understand who you are would have space to talk to them about your son. Maybe that means just inviting them to a party next weekend. And God, I pray that Community Bash would be a God-honoring event, an event that brings glory to your name as we serve our community. God, I pray that it would be an easy first step in for those who don't know you to come and hear a message of your love. God, I pray that those who come on Saturday would come back on Sunday to see what we're all about. God, we don't do this for us. We do this for you. Because we believe, Father, that your love for humanity can change the world, can change individual hearts, can change lives, can set people free. Make us models. Use our lives, the brokenness, the good and the bad. We pray that you would use it for your glory to help others see that you can do a work in their lives too. God, we pray for great conversations. We pray for lots of fun. We pray that you'd keep us safe. We pray for good weather. And we pray for an incredible time as we serve those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.